Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 49, Psalm 49. We'll be reading the entirety of this psalm. Psalm chapter 49, we'll read all 20 verses, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is our custom, God's Word declares to the chief musician a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to a God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly." And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die. Likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity, who approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers, they shall see his, they shall never see his light. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts, that perish. Well, this morning we continue our messages and build up to the celebration that we have planned next Sunday of our Lord's resurrection. And really that's what we celebrate every Sunday here. That's why we celebrate on Sunday, is because that is the event that we are signifying and uh, solemnizing. Every time we gather on Sunday, we are acknowledging that that is the day of the week that our Lord and Savior rose again. It is the power of our deliverance. It is that in which we hope. It is the work of God on our behalf, whereby the payment for our sin was accepted and the resulting victory was secured for us. It is the most phenomenal thing that has ever been done in the history of man. It not only should change the course of history, but it should change the course of men's lives. And that was its intent. And when Peter in Acts chapter 2 is confronted with the question 
what does it all mean? And wants to lead them to the question of saying, what shall we do? He takes them into God's word and rehearses for them that is the power of God to raise up is the power of God that destroys the pains and power of death. It was the power of God to have his son resurrected because he could not and should not be held by death because he was a sinless son of man. So we come, having studied Peter's sermon to some degree, I was fascinated by his handling of the Psalms. And just in a cursory reading of the Psalms, we will discover how much it speaks of the resurrection. Many of our idea of the Psalms, these are Psalms written about God helping David in times of trouble. And we rely upon them in much the same way, that we are going to look to them for Solace. We're going to look to them for encouragement to strengthen us in times of trials and tribulations of, of opposition and, and dealing with the evil that is around us in this world. But so many of them have their ultimate fulfillment not in David and really not in your life, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was hated of all men, though he was perfectly innocent. Though he loved them and came to die for them, they cursed him and crucified him. And in that condition, he is the fulfillment of so many of these psalms that speak to the need for deliverance and asking the question, my God, why have you forsaken me? Much of what Christ declares in those time periods comes directly from the psalms. And so this morning we want to go to one of the psalms, not the same psalm that Peter uses. Peter quotes out of a couple of different psalms, Psalm 16 being one of them. We want to go to Psalm 49 in our, in our build-up to next week. And uh, I do not think that that's, I hate to even use that word because I build up for every Sunday. So I don't consider next Sunday any more precious a sermon than this Sunday, Um, but in our continuing study of the resurrection and its power, uh, we are called to a week of celebration, and the week to come is a week um, triggered really by this evening at sunset where Passover begins, and we don't link the resurrection um, directly to Passover, and that's why we begin our worship of his resurrection because we want to signify that first day of the week that he arose again. But we know, recognize that he was the Passover lamb, that he was the fulfillment of that role, that he is the one who, by his shed blood, covered us so that death would not penetrate, even as the blood on the doorposts and lintels of the homes of Israel in Egypt guarded them. From death's hand being upon every family in that land. And so as they commemorate that deliverance, we take a week to commemorate our deliverance in Christ Jesus. 
And I want to challenge you to do so, that this is a time, Passover is a week of feasting, is a week of celebration. Um, certainly there is agony in what goes on in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is confusion and, and uh, uh, hurt and injury in the minds and lives of the disciples and the uh, from the arrest and throughout the trial of Christ and his crucifixion, certainly there was anguish and turmoil and physical suffering by our Lord's spiritual suffering as he became sin for us. Um, but I want to remind you, as God's word does, that he endured all that because of the joy that was set before him. And he despised that shame that is set down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And so... As our Savior faced that time, recognizing the anguish that is there, but also underlying it, his joy, so we are called to celebrate that joy. And even in our celebration this Thursday of his death through the communion table, we are reflecting joyfully upon his willingness to do so on our behalf. Knowing that he came with a purpose to accomplish. And so this is to be a week of celebration a week of rejoicing, a week where we meditate upon the wonderful power that is made available to man through the person and work of Jesus Christ and God's recognition of that work through raising him from the dead. One of the worst things that we can do in response to this week is to trust in anything less than Christ's resurrection. And this brings us to Psalm 49. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. And what a privilege it is to have it here before us, readily available in our own language. Lord, we know your spirit is within us as well to illuminate it to our minds, our hearts. In all this, we rejoice. We are a privileged class of people. We have experienced so much of your grace, so much of your mercy. You've lavished it on us so heavily that we sometimes take it all for granted. And for this, we ask your forgiveness. When we are less than thankful, when we are less than joyful, when we are less than obedient, Lord, forgive us. For the powerful working and the grace that you've extended towards us certainly makes great demands of us. And Lord, it is our desire this hour to meet some of those demands. To study your word in uh, an honest way. Willing to lay our lives out before you and allow you to penetrate your truth into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, into our very will. Lord, we pray you might have the freedom to do that. We might relinquish our arrogant hold to our own will. And pray as our Savior prayer that your will would be done in us and not ours. Lord, guide us in that manner today. And Lord, if there be something within us, an unrepented sin uh, that we are clinging to, that would prevent your work in us, Lord, we pray you might forgive us of that. We might be instruments fit for your use today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Psalm 49 introduces a very key philosophy, I think, and principle from God's Word that I think is very appropriate in our society. It is appropriate because we fit the bill, and most of your neighbors and friends fit the bill. I don't know that I would use this passage uh, necessarily in, in other lands that I visited, um, but in this land, oh, it is so necessary that we visit a psalm like this to remind ourselves of which side of the equation we will tend to land on in the question of in what do you trust, in who do you trust. And that's fundamentally what Psalm 49 is going to drive us to. We've already read it this morning. We, we want to go through it very quickly and focus in on really just a few passages and correlate that to other passages and other scriptures. But let us consider the basic principle. Give ear to this, all people. Listen, all of you peoples. None of you are immune from this. Listen. All the world needs to live carefully here because all men have a propensity towards this. Even those in poor lands, we're going to be talking about that a little bit. Um, we're going to have one side of it that's, that we're going to feel. Uh, there's another side of this that uh, certainly can be shared by other lands. Um, and so he says, whether you're low, whether you're high, rich or poor, uh, what he speaks is wisdom. And wisdom is tr- <laughs> built on truth is appropriate to all peoples. It's not that I can disregard that because I'm not rich or I don't consider myself rich. Or I can disregard that because I'm poor um, or because I'm not poor. Uh, These truths, these principles are for all men. They're encompassing of the human predicament. There are no peoples who are insulated this. There is no person on earth that doesn't have a natural tendency towards this because our heart is desperately wicked. So the wisdom that we're going to be confronted in this psalm needs to be heard. It needs to be meditated upon. It needs to be understood. And as he declares, he's going to do it in song. We are missing the music to play on the instruments, but he's doing it in a song. But yet he recognizes that even in this song on a harp, he is going to be issuing some mysteries. Um, the, the way it's translated in the New King James is dark sayings. Uh, basically things that uh, people have missed out on. They have, they have lost track of. They have they've turned the light out on these truths in their lives. And they have done so to their own peril. And so he wants to bring them to our memory to our to the forefront of our thinking and using this song he's going to do that by by bringing forth dark things that is things that we have darkened we've kind of choose to forget because it's easy to choose to forget them and some of these things aren't necessarily fun things to remember all the time but they are so necessary that we remember them and they are part of the completing our joy and trusting in the Lord alone, and in recognizing the great need that is out there for men to hear the truth. And so, here he begins his sayings, beginning in verse 5, really, of the psalm. We are introduced to the truths that he wants to communicate. 
It begins, why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels surrounds me? We're confronted with this truth that in this world we are surrounded by evil. Even as you partake of the very good things that God has made for you in his created state, unmarred by sin, he called them very good. But they, even as we, in his common grace, has allowed us to continue to participate in them, it is very easy for us to, first of all, lose track of exactly where we live. We live in a world that we should not be clinging to, because to cling to this world is to cling to the evil that is in it. It is surrounding us. It is enveloping us. Um, We are called to be saints, that is, holy ones. We are called to righteousness. uh, And that's going to be played out in many of the Psalms and Proverbs. We're going to read one of them today. Uh, We are called to righteousness. And we find that all around us there is evil. There is iniquity. It is right at my heels, he says, It is not far off, that is. It is not way behind me somewhere. I put that all behind me and I don't have to ever worry about it again. It is not, uh, I'm not distanced from it. Wherever I go, wherever I walk on this planet, it is right there on my heels. Both chronologically and spatially, it is near, always near at hand. So do I walk around fretting and worrying? No, he says, I'm not going to fear. Though this evil could very quickly engulf me, though this evil could very quickly turn against me, and certainly I anticipate that it must, at some point, if I am a righteous man, evil must turn against me. It must seek to devour me. It it must be its purpose, if I am a righteous man. But do I fear it? The psalmist says, no, I don't fear it. And why should we not fear? And he goes into beginning to talk about not his trust, but what other men trust in. And the foolishness of it. Verse 6, we are confronted with those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of the riches. And this is our world in our society, in this land particularly, but it is not isolated here. I've been to very impoverished lands and I've seen the great disparity between the poor and the rich in those lands too. But they believe because they have wealth that they have blessing. That because they have wealth they should have honor. That because they have wealth they have hope. That because they have wealth they have joy. And then they discover they have none of these things. In fact, the psalmist goes on to describe what it means to trust in wealth. He's introduced it in verse 6, but he really develops it a little bit later on in verse 11. And uh, let's jump forward to there. Verse 11 describes what it means to trust in wealth. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. (laughs) That's what they think. Their house will last forever. The dwelling places to all generations... They call their lands after their own names. And they believe that they can set up for themselves within their wealth and within the the preservation of their name, either associated with their house or their family 
or their land, that they can preserve their honor for all generations, that even after death, that I'll still have an influence on the earth, that they'll never be forgotten, and they claim to have some kind of eternity if they can never be forgotten. And you hear this all the time in our culture. Well, as long as we remember them, they're here with us. That's nonsense. It's complete garbage. But we give solace to ourselves with those kinds of statements. As long as we remember them, they're with us. Well, they're not with us. I don't care how much you remember them. I don't care if you make a videotape and watch it daily of your dead relatives. They're not with you because you remember them. They're either in a place of judgment and torment or in the Savior's presence, humbling, serving Him. They are not with you. Where does this idea come from? It comes from the idea that this psalmist's wisdom isn't true. That if I can just build a building that will be around thousands of years later, that somehow that will make my name great in all the earth and somehow give meaning to my life and purpose and fulfillment and joy and honor. Um, And hence we have all these pharaohs trying to follow the Great Pyramid by building their own little tombs in Egypt. Oh, they're still there. Do you know all their names? Do you care? Do you care? Does it make any difference? And so we have one of the fascinating things in the history of architecture is how temporal it has become. It is kind of interesting to look um, that the idea of building out of wood was considered very unwise, very temporary, po- impoverishing to build out. Remember the story of the three little pigs? Okay. Remember the second little pig, what he built a house out of? Sticks, right? And then bricks, because if, if it's going to last, it's got to be out of stone. Because we think of stone as a thing that endures, and it doesn't burn, and it, it, it might, but yet we find that, yeah, there are places buried in sediment, great civilizations, huge cities, sometimes buried instantaneously by volcanic ash, sometimes over time just through wind and, and erosion, and we find these places in the Middle East, and the question is, so what? Where are the residents? We didn't even know that city existed until somebody put a shovel in there and tried to build their own structure that was going to last forever. These people think through their great wealth they can build great houses. They can establish family names and heritages. And we are so given to this in a very different way. Um, And we establish foundations based upon our family name. And boy, that must be great to have, you know, so-and-so foundation. Um, And by the way, the Christian community is not uh, insulated from this. There's a group right over here in Texas called Old Ham Little Church Foundation. Um, And what they do is they provide building funds for small churches um, to help them finish off their buildings. But it's named after a guy who provided all the funds. Old Ham was his last name. 
See, we try to make our names last and connect them for generations. Some, something that's honorable among men and so we can carry on our glory into generations. We call our lands after our own names. Thinking that that way my memory can continue. In verse 12 says, Nevertheless, no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they try to direct their life to make a lasting impact on the earth, all the honor that they try to develop doesn't last. And in the end, they're not that much different than the beasts of the earth that just die and become dust. Like all the beasts that perish, that's what he's like. They can't remain. Unless you think that, well, that's them and not me, the fact is that most of us have that more, more of that kind of thinking than not. Even though we find here in verse 13 that this is the way of those who are foolish. This is a foolishness to think that somehow I can have value even after I'm dead if I make some kind of lasting impact here on earth while I'm here. If I can have some edifice, some structure that'll endure, if I can have some name that'll be carried on generation after generation, if I can just have some uh, piece of the earth named after me, that somehow that is to my honor and benefit for all eternity. What foolishness. <laughs> Complete foolishness. But it's the last half of verse 13 that's a little troubling. And that is that the world doesn't view them as foolish. The world thinks of them as wise. To such a degree that we take their sayings and approve them, it says. That there's even foolishness in their posterity who approve their sayings. Then we say, well, he must have known something because he's wealthy. And look at the, you know, he's got a city named after him. He's got these great big buildings. I mean, he's got a foundation named for him. He's got all this going for him. He's dead, I know, but, but he must have known something because look at how successful he has been. And we all kind of make that our object, that that's who we want to become like. And we think that therein is something to trust in, something to strive for. And we even applaud those who can similarly get to that point or live according to those sayings, those, those principles that those people live by, forgetting that all the time God views them as complete fools for trusting in this world. This is God's view of these people. Why would we approve of their sayings? Well, it sounds like wisdom. The wisdom of men is foolishness with God. The next verse says they're like sheep laid in the grave. And death feeds on them. This is their end, and there's nothing they can do about it, no matter how wealthy they are. And so let's jump back and now... Uh, look into how he says it in, in uh, earlier in the chapter, in verse 7. 
These are those that boast in the multitude of their riches. They are trusting in their wealth. They are sure that they make a name for themselves and that all posterity remembers that, that heritage, that somehow it brings value to their existence even after they're gone. And the Bible says, what fools? Here's what they can't do, no matter how much wealth they amass. Here we go, verse 7. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall, ne- it shall cease forever. No matter how much wealth they accumulate, no matter how much they, they strive to have men look up to them and honor them, uh, no matter how much of a uh, heritage they try to create for themselves, not one of them is capable of paying the purchase price for sin and death. Not one of them. And this takes us very quickly to other passages. Look at Proverbs chapter 11. If you'll turn with me, Proverbs chapter 11, the next book over from Psalms, Proverbs 11. And I'd like to read a bunch of this. Um, Let's start at verse 2. We'll read into it a little bit. I'm going to skip a couple of portions, but here we go. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lusts. When a wicked man dies... His expectation will perish. To have an expectation is that you think because you've created wealth that you are somehow to be honored by men. That that's their hope. And the second half of the verse, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. (laughs) I love that part. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. You want to follow the sayings of men who trust in wealth? You are following destructive words. Their mouth is wickedness. Because it directs men away from real truth, which is to follow after Jesus alone. So you don't find me promoting the quotes of all wealthy men in history. For the Bible says that they are devoid of wisdom. It's just lost on them. Because they really think that their wealth is something worthwhile. Let's jump down to verse 22. It says, As a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a... Oh, that's not the one I wanted. (laughs) Verse 23, there we go. So is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. We'll just throw that one in for free, ladies. There you go. All right. If you think, if, if men are known by their wealth and you think you're known by your wealth you try to wear, um, better check on that verse. Verse 23 is where I want to get to. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation, there's that word again, of the wicked is wrath. 
no matter how nice and rational and awe-inspiring the words of the wealthy are, the fact is, is that they have no expectation that is true, that really brings hope. Their sayings are wickedness, and all that they really have waiting for them at the end is the wrath of God. Verse 28, I'm still in Psalm or Proverbs 11, says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. What a contrast. Back in Psalm 49, we find that here is a wealthy man who's trying to make a name for himself and build a heritage for himself so that everyone down the road after he is gone can't hardly forget him because of the great structures he's built, because of his namesake, because he's got property named for him. He has an estate. But he can't buy his very own brother out of the clutches of death and suffering and punishment. All his wealth is worthless. But then we find here in Proverbs that there's a place where there's a tree of life. And in this one, in whom is the tree of life, there's a way to win souls. That you can bring souls or takes them out of the sin and death and to bring them into, graft them into the tree of life. And this is wisdom. This is real wisdom. The wealthy aren't wise. For they trust in that. And we are warned repeatedly in God's word. And, and I know when you hear wealthy, you think of the top one percent of our nation. Yes, there there is a, a, a improper uh, distribution of wealth. I, I, I'll give you that in this country. But when we think of wealthy, we think of this top one percent that hold a huge percentage of the wealth of this country, um, and we think we have an axe to grind against them. What we often ignore is the global impact that. Even the bottom 30% of this country is still in the top 20% globally in wealth. That makes every one of you wealthy. If you don't believe me, you need to travel more. You need to go out there and find out what they think of you showing up in their country. And their assumption is, and it doesn't matter where I've traveled, I don't think, um, whether it's in Egypt or in Turkey or in uh, uh, India, in in Haiti, of course, (laughs) in Peru. The assumption is, you're an American coming in, you have money. And you know what? Their assumption is absolutely correct. 
you do. And so when we read these verses, we tend to think of the wealthy as being the super rich. And we forget that we are the wealthy globally. We support some Indian men and they're living on $100 a month that we send them. Wrap your head around that. You expect a man to raise his family. Well, the family guys get $120. $120 a month. When I take my whole family out for a birthday dinner at a restaurant, I spend that much on one meal. It's part of the penalty of having a big family, I guess. That's why it's about the only times we go out to eat is when we have a birthday to celebrate. One meal. I'll spend that much. Get the idea? So when it talks about the wealthy here, and by the way, it's fascinating that American church believes we can dictate or should dictate to all the other churches in the world how they ought to be doing church and what good theology looks like. Why? Because we believe the opposite of God's word. We believe that the wealthy are wise. And because we have the money, we must know how to do it right. And you guys don't. We should be bringing them here to teach us. Because we are clueless when it comes to what it really means to trust in the Lord. You bring a man here who is feeding hundreds of orphans And he doesn't know how he's going to feed them next week. Because he doesn't have the resources. Guess what? He's trusting the Lord that in a manner you and I have never gotten close to. So let's not throw this wealth stuff off on the super rich of this nation. Realize you are the super rich of the world. You are in the top 20%, even the poorest. And most of you are in the top 10% of the world. God calls us to a righteousness that leads to life. He calls us to pursue it. That we are a tree of life and that we have an opportunity to win souls. We can't buy them, but we can win them. We can snatch them out of the clutches of death, but not by our own power, strength, or wealth. It's just not the way it works. And let's go back to Psalms and find out how do we win souls? How do we do it? Psalm 49 We find the redemption of their souls is costly in verse 8 of 49. To redeem a soul, to buy it out of sin, death, and the, and the judgment that it deserves is costly. And, and really, it's a continuous cost. It, it, there, there's no one, until the Son of Man comes and pays that, no one is capable of it. A trib- combine all the wealth of all the generations, and it's never going to be enough. But one man, and only one man, paid that price. That men should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. The the rich can't buy their way out. And so when, when 
the Catholics are building the the uh, Vatican, the city of gold, and and here they come up with a doctrine that well you you know your family's in purgatory, but if you give some money, you'll shorten their stay there. That's a great wealth builder for the church, but it's and it and it was a made sense to all the wealthy because they were trusting in wealth. It stroked their egos. It wasn't far from there to buying indulgences that I can pay money and and this sin won't be counted against me? Sure. Trust in your wealth. The opposite of God's word that calls us to trust only in that one who can deliver from sin and death. And it is him we are celebrating. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, this is how Jesus describes it. Going to turn there in his teaching. Let's pick up in um, verse 24. We just got done with verses 21 through 23, which we studied already about Jesus' prediction of his death. Uh, once again, uh, that he, and also of his resurrection. He raised the third day. Peter says, far be it from you. And then God says, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, we come now to verse 24 and following. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow. This is the offer of God. You can't buy your way in. Because the purchase price is the blood of Jesus Christ who has he just described in verses 21 through 23 that he would have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, uh, be killed, and then raised from the third day. This is all necessary. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to pay it on your behalf. I can redeem your souls. Your wealth can't. How much are you going to pay me for this? There's no price tag. We all recognize that. Because it is impossible for their wealth. They can't redeem one single soul with all their wealth. They can't buy their very own brother's soul. Not one. But Christ's offer and the power of the resurrection is that he can save souls. He can snatch them from death and destruction, from judgment, from all that the world would love to get away from, the evil that encompasses us. God says, the Son of Man will do it. By the power of the resurrection, that is what we're celebrating. That He is doing what none of us can do for ourselves. He has done it. He waits for us to receive it, to accept it. Not to buy it. But 
Well, instead of needing wealth, we find that wealth is what keeps us from it. Because we trust in it. And the fact is, is that we're guilty of trusting in wealth. We're guilty of what Psalm 49 says. We really do, to some degree or another, think that we... And, and here's how it comes off. Here's how Christians reveal that that's really in their heart. Is, if I asked you, what was the evidence of God's blessing in your life? Most of us would register somewhere in there, I have a good job, I have a nice house, the mortgage is up to date. <laughs> um, and we associate wealth with blessing. Which is a pretty Old Testament idea for Israel, but it's not what God offered the church. I think some of the most blessed people on the planet right now are probably getting beat up in prison today because they claim the name of Jesus Christ. But you and I don't associate that with blessing. Because we think more like the evil that surrounds us, that's right at our heels, than biblically. What really does it mean to be blessed by God? And we find Jesus Christ saying, you want the reward? Deny yourself. Take up a cross. Follow him. There's a triune statement you don't hear associated with God's blessing very often, do you, in this land? But this is the wisdom that's from above that brings joy. And this is what we celebrate. And I fear that for many of us, what we associate it with is, I'm going to have my wealth and add Jesus to it. You're not denying anything then. God calls us to deny ourselves, to, de- to, to reject the idea that there is any safety, any security, any benefit to all this stuff, that, it's, that we view it rather like great big iron balls connected to our heels by giant linked iron chains that we drag around with us. But we don't associate the things of this world like that, do we? They're blessings. Christ said, you've got to unshackle yourself from all that and you're going to have to go out and serve me. And he tells the disciples, "Um, go two by two, you don't need to take anything with you. That's what it means to trust Christ. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Whatever it costs isn't relative to me anymore. Because I don't trust any of that stuff. In fact, I understand that that stuff is is the part of what's at my heels that I'm really trying to escape. And I can only do it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the power of the resurrection. And this we celebrate. That Christ has paid a price that the wealthiest on earth could never pay. For only in his righteousness could he redeem us. And he has snatched our lives out of the muck and evil that's still at our heels today by the power 
of His resurrection. And we need to lose our lives in Christ in that work of His on Calvary's cross. And then we will find all the joy, all that peace, and that tree of life that the righteous possess. We have such a tree available. And it's costly. And we try to talk about the the price Jesus paid, which is the ultimate and the complete. But there is a costliness to us. And that costliness isn't that you need to pay money. It's that you need to reject it. You just reject wealth as anything worth anything. Physical wealth. To see it not as a blessing, but maybe as a curse. Maybe as evidence that I am much more attuned to this world than the next. That my trust is misplaced. Oh, that we would trust in the Lord. And it's a fascinating thing to me, and, and again, more revealing even, that the wealthiest people on earth so trust in that that we buy something called insurance. So we use our money to buy a plan to hedge ourselves against anything that might happen in the future. And it just reveals who we trust in, doesn't it? I'll trust in the collective uh, assurances of this corporation that promises that if uh, something falls on my house, they'll rebuild the house. Because, of course, we can't really trust God in those kind of things. So we're going to use some of our wealth to guard against those. I want you to consider that a hundred years ago, there was no hardly any such thing called insurance. What was life like without that? And how quickly we have gone from now, from something that no one possessed, to now thinking you're irresponsible as an adult not to possess. This is the wisdom of the world. And we buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. We consider their sayings valuable. And we disregard. We disapprove the sayings of God's word by trusting in wealth and those that hold it rather than trusting in real wealth and the one who holds it, Jesus Christ. Well, I've probably stomped on a lot of toes and given you cause for concern. And, and if that's the case, I am thrilled to pieces. Because there's nothing more dangerous than trusting in wealth. And this is the wisdom that we must understand. And it is a mystery that needs to be sung a little bit. that there is only one who can redeem your soul. 
back in Isaiah or Psalm 49. Death feeds on everyone. We left off in the middle of verse 14. I want to finish verse 14, 15. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be cons- their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. They're going to rot in a grave, whether it's made in stone in the midst of a cathedral or in a tar pit somewhere, they're going to rot. Death will destroy them. Verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. This is the message that we want to meditate on this week. God shall redeem my soul. God is the one who has the power of the grave. God is ready to receive any who will come to him, rejecting the foolishness of the wealthy who touted as wisdom and accept the truth and approve the sayings of God instead of approving the sayings of the wealthy. And God says, I'll redeem you. I'll receive you. But you have to deny yourself. You're going to have to deny all that stuff you trust in instead of me and trust in me alone. The psalmist ends by again rehearsing that the dead, no matter how much glory they receive, I'm sorry, the wealthy, no matter how much glory they receive in this earth, when he dies, he takes none of it with him. In my house, we have a favorite little song that goes, you never see a U-Haul pulled behind a hearse. Can't take it with you when you go. That comes out of Psalm 49, verse 17. When he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. That is to go into the pit. He's going to bless himself while he lives, and other men are going to applaud you as well, it says. But men are liars, and their hearts are deceitful. What a sadness that any of this generation, because we trust in our wealth, will die and they shall never see light, the end of verse 19 says. That's their end. They will never see light. The lake of fire sounds like a bright place because we associate fire with light. The Bible says it's a place of utter darkness. And to be at a place where you never see light is to be in complete judgment. And this is their end. While they applaud themselves on earth and while we listen to their sayings and pay heed to them and try to give them honor, the end result is they're like the beasts that perish. They're pitiable. And we need to be careful to guard ourselves that we understand that we are on the wrong side of this equation in most of our thinking. Even while we give lip service the fact that we trust in the Lord, the actions of our lives speak differently than we trust in wealth. That we want to have a name 
that outlives us here on earth. And frankly, that's worthless. I hope my name is quickly forgotten as soon as I die. Because I only want my name remembered in one place. And that's where I'm going to live. Forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for, again, this message of hope and redemption and deliverance of a tree of life that is offered to you, to us through the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And we marvel at it. And Lord, help us this week to meditate on it and to do it with joy, but only in accordance to the degree that we have denied ourselves, taken up our cross and followed you. We are your disciples. Lord, if that is not the case, then let us not find any false joy. But let the weight of this truth, this meditation, this psalm weigh on us. That we might turn from trusting in anything of this world and anyone. That we might trust only in your Son, Jesus Christ. And in Him, we might walk. Lord, please forgive us. For we continue to catch ourselves walking in the ways of this world. Bending our ear to their sayings and approving them by quoting them. When they have no light, even this day. Lord, forgive us paying heed to the sayings of men and ignoring the sayings of God. Lord, we rejoice that you have done what no man can do, that the wealth of the world could not accomplish. You have delivered, redeemed us from the pit of death forevermore by the resurrection power of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.